guys. Welcome to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. I'm Kelly. I'm your wine explorer here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am chatting with people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry. This is the 100th episode of the A Cork in the Road podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm your host. Welcome to the mega episode, the longest episode I've ever produced for the podcast. And I'm just absolutely honored that you have pushed play today and that you are here to take a little walk down memory lane with us as we check in with a few past guests in a where are they now type format. And you're about to hear some pretty big updates from these past guests' unique wine journeys over the past couple of years since the last time they were on the show. This was so fun to put together and I hope you enjoy it as much as we all did recording these conversations. The show notes have the names and bios of the guests as well as the timestamps for when each of the sections begin in case you want to click around and listen in segments, go out of order, whatever you feel like doing to celebrate this milestone. I'm hosting a few events in Atlanta coming up to also celebrate, the first being a blind tasting event at the Enophile Institute on Sunday, March 19th. There are actually still a few tickets left, I think, as of when the 100th episode is launching. So if you want to join us and practice your blind tasting skills in a fun environment, I will also be giving away a prize to the top taster in the final round. But knowing the wines that we've picked out for this lineup, this celebratory All Things 100 lineup, everyone will be winning. So if you want to have a ton of fun, go ahead and check out www.acorkintheroad.com to grab one of those last spots. And you can also see ticket links for a few other events that we have coming up this spring. So we have a lot to get to in this episode, and I can't wait for you to hear from these past guests. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right in and kick things off by first checking in with my very first guest ever, on the podcast. Yes, as in episode one. I caught up with Billy Harris of the Vino Van, and it was the perfect way to honor this milestone and to thank her on air for taking a chance on me and for taking a chance on this project all those years ago. So cheers to all of my past guests. Thank you for taking the time to share your stories with this show. And to the Southeast wine community, I raise my glass. So without further ado, I present the 100th episode of A Cork in the Road. Hello, Billy Harris. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Big old cheers to you with my flambeau rose. Cheers. <laughs> this is such a full circle moment for me as I sit here and I remember asking you to be on the show. You were episode number one because I didn't even have seasons. You were just episode one recorded November of 2018. Oh, I didn't even realize it had been that long. It was published. (laughs) It was published in July of 2019. So Mm -hmm. what I think I must have done is I was recording and kind of testing out the concept for the podcast, reaching out to people that I knew had cool stories, recording them, but I don't think I released it until the summer. So I didn't publish it till later, but I think I talked to you and I was exploring the podcast idea. Why did you agree to be a guest on my non-existent show at that point? Well, because, you know, I'm always game, you know, especially when it comes to my my friends. You know, and especially when it's something that's fun, that's cool, and especially when it's um, centered around wine, I'm going to always be present as much as I possibly can. So, yeah, I was I was just game. I was up for it. It sounded like a cool idea. It sounded like something that was going to be fun. So, yeah, 
So will you be surprised to hear that people still find your episode? I see people oh, wow. that, yes, I find that people discover the show and then they go back into the archives. And so there'll yeah. be spikes of the data where it's like episode one with Billy Harris, Vino Van, and it says, you know, from 2019 or whatever it is. And it's yeah. just wild that people are still finding it. Have you listened to the show recently? No, but now I am. Now that you now that you brought that up, I'm gonna go back because I want to hear. I want to hear how it went because I can't. You know, I kind of remember bits and pieces, but yeah, I'm gonna go back and look at it myself. Billy, I'm gonna be honest with you. I've only listened to it once when we recorded because at the time, <laughs> I know I wasn't editing. I wasn't doing proofing because I didn't even have the software to do that. So I yeah. know that I just recorded with you and posted it. So it is as raw as podcasting. I love it. <laughs> but I love it though. I, I like that. You know, it's just, that's just pure, just whatever it was, no editing, no nothing. You know, what you see is what you get. <laughs> it was completely both of us. And I know at the time that we talked about your business and the tours that you were doing in North Georgia. Like I remember that being the center focus because it was a great story to tell and super unique for the Southeast and what you were doing. What excites you still about Georgia wine, Billy? You're my Georgia wine go-to. What excites <laughs> you these days? Well, it's the fact that they just keep coming. The vineyards and the wineries just keep coming and they're expanding. And the ones that have been there for many, 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 many years are um, expanding their portfolios and they're making you know, varietals that they may not have made some years prior. Always something evolving up there in North Georgia. It's always something new. It's always the the feel. I, I got to keep going back to that. It's just the feel of the people in North Georgia and just the place itself as well. That never gets old to me. It doesn't matter. I can go up there a million times over the years. It just never gets old. Well, now they all know you too. And you're sending people maybe for yeah. their first time. I mean, I think about so many times people get on that van and go on your tours and it's the first time they've ever had Georgia wine. Yep. Yeah, it is. And a lot of people are, I'm, I'm starting to get more people from out of town now that I wasn't really getting, you know, in earlier years because they're hearing about these vineyards and wineries that are in North Georgia and of course, they had no idea that there were they were even in existence. So, you know, that's a lot of my customers are like how I still call them my friends in wine. I still call them that. Um, so a lot of them are coming from, you know, surrounding states like Alabama, uh, Florida, Tennessee. I've even had some folks from New York. I've had some people from Cali. I've had some folks from England. I mean, I've had people on board from just from everywhere. And trying Georgia wines for probably the first time, especially those people from London. That would have been their first Georgia wine, right? <laughs> oh, yes, it was. Yes, it was. And they were impressed. You know, they were they were impressed. I don't know. I think they were expecting, um, you know, just kind of lackluster wine, but they were impressed, I must say. So you're continuing to connect people. You're always a connector. I feel like I go <laughs> everywhere and people know of you. They know of your business, but they know that you are part of the Atlanta wine community. So tell me, yeah. Billy, as we sit here a hundred yeah. episodes later. <laughs> Congratulations on that. That's amazing. Thank That's you. Amazing. I'm yeah. sure when we sat down, I never thought I would get to a hundred recordings yeah. of people's stories, but you took a chance on it. So since that time, what are some of your favorite moments? personally and or professional 
that have happened since you hopped on the show. A couple key highlights of Billy's wine journey that we may have missed since 2018. (laughs) Well, so, okay. So here's, here's one thing. So of course, you know, when the shutdown occurred, everybody, not just me, but everybody had to do a lot of pivoting. Um, So with that being said, you know, I had to get creative, you know, because I wanted to stay relevant. I wanted to kind of still stay on the scene, stay on the wine scene, stay fresh in people's minds and just let them know one day soon we'll be back, you know, and we'll be back rolling um, up to North Georgia. Um, So one of the things that was very memorable during that time are the other things that I explored. Like when I teamed up with one of my dear friends and chef, Defon, and we were doing these wine pairing dinners, live wine pairing dinners. That was a lot of fun and it was different, you know, and it still kept people engaged, you know, and we, st- I still had opportunity to, you know, live out my, my love and my passion for wine by talking wine with everyone who came on the live with us and, and then still, you know, assured them that the Vino Van at some, someday soon <laughs> would be running again. So um, that was one of the things that stood out the most that we were able to still, I was able, I was able to still do what I love, even during the time when every single thing in the world had shut down. And then just the fact that after everything opened back up, how eager people were to hop back aboard, no hesitation at all. It was just, you know, I just, I don't know what I expected, but I didn't necessarily expect what actually happened. So those were two things that were very, very memorable from that point in time until to where I am right now. But yeah, and then I've celebrated a, a milestone. I celebrated a, a fifth year anniversary. And so I, that was something that I was very proud of. Still be doing this thing even after something so really devastating, you know, to a lot of people. So that was a blessing. You continued shining and you were shining on lives when everyone wanted to talk about wine and food. And I remember Mm -hmm. popping on those. Your chemistry together online was so great. And it was connecting people through that channel that you love so, so much. So when you think about that and what you've accomplished, even in times where things seemed like chaos and that things were not the norm anymore, what sets the Atlanta wine community apart that you still are really proud of that when you go places now, cause you're everywhere. I mean, you're traveling, I'm talking to you out of state right now. When you talk about Atlanta, what are you saying? Oh gosh. Um, amazing things. I'm talking about, you know, all of the people uh, from all walks of life, from all different professions and backgrounds that are sharing this love of wine. And how they are brave enough to just sort of kind of step out and just try whatever when it comes to that, you know, whether it's, you know, being a wine educator, hosting tastings or events or whatever the case may be. I'm just seeing way more of that now than I ever have in Atlanta. And I love that. I love the fact that our wine community is growing. Our our community of wine professionals is growing and it's growing rapidly. So I'm I'm very happy that people are becoming more and more interested in the wine world, you know, and learning more about it and understanding how amazing it is. And not just because I always say it's just, you know, because it's goodness in a glass, but, you know, the fact that it's just so much more than that. It's, it's our, it's culture, it's history, geography. It's just, it's life. It's just life. It's my life. Anyway, (laughs) it's my life. 
I just got some chills because you just said that so explicitly, Billy. It was perfect. It was perfect about how the energy here in Atlanta and the community of people and the access to opportunities to learn about wine is growing exponentially. And we get to work with really good wines when we do that. So what excites you about what's next? 2023, big goals. Billy, what's on the radar? So, um... I do have some things that that I'm working on that I want to expand as far as the vino van is concerned. I, I, it's a few things that to fall underneath the umbrella of the vino van, um, and these are other avenues to enjoy wine and explore the wine world in addition to tours. Um, there are two other things. One is called Go Go Vino. So Go Go Vino, hopefully. Fingers crossed, if everything goes to plan, we'll be launching in the fall. And Gogo Vino will basically pop up at festivals and private events, really just wherever wine is needed, basically. So Gogo Vino will pop up and bring the party. We're talking about a wine, a wine <laughs> mobile. Billy? <A> wine mobile. <laughs> this just made my day. I am yeah. so excited. <laughs> I've been working on this for a long, a long time. It's logical. You were taking people in a mobile way to explore wine. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to bring the wine to wherever those people I'm are. Bring, yep. I want to pull up. I want to pull up and pop out. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt is what I want. <laughs> right. Pull up and pop out with the wine. That's what I want to do. <laughs> really? I, this is incredible. This is everything I wanted to hear. That is Great for 2023. And you're still a mom and you're still a wife and you're one of the best friends. You are currently on a trip to celebrate your birthday. And you told me these are friends from your childhood, Billy. Yep, from kindergarten. These are friends from kindergarten. (laughs) When someone tells me that, it tells me everything I need to know about who they are as a friend. If you have kept those people in your life for that long, that tells me something about you. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, they're very special. And that and and everyone I've told that to, they were like, wait a minute, you mean like like little, like yeah, like five, six years old, small, <laughs> up up until now. And we're all well into our forties. Well, mm-hmm. cheers to you. You've kept your people close and you yeah. are always weaving in wine. So how can people reach you now? Has anything changed? What's the best way to find out about this? Mobile wine adventure that's happening. Well, it's definitely definitely gonna be popping up on Instagram. That's for sure. So um, all of the details as far as like when I'm gonna be up and running, you'll definitely be able to find that on Instagram. I'm gonna start it off with advertising it on my current Instagram page, which is at the Vino Van LLC, and then Gogo Vino will of course have its own Instagram page and website. Only big things to come from you, Billy. I am so excited. This is the type of energy that wine brings to our life and that you bring to the Atlanta wine community. So thank you for being part of day one, actually day one, episode one. (laughs) I know, right? Oh my gosh. Thank you for believing in me and this show when you had actually nothing to go off of. There are so many stories to share and everyone on this show has given a new story to the Southeast wine industry. So thank you for kicking all of this project off. Cheers to you, my friend. You're the best. Cheers. Popping bottles. Pulling up and popping out. (laughs) 
Next up, I check in with Chelsea Young, an inaugural recipient of the Fuel Your Dreams Scholarship for Women in Wine by Women of the Vine and Spirits that she received in 2018. This launched her into an incredible formal wine education journey, and as of January 2023, she has sat for her last WSET diploma exams and is impatiently, she says, awaiting the results. Education has always been her main passion, and she continues to share her knowledge within the entire Atlanta wine community. The biggest news we talk about is that in September of 2022, Chelsea opened the Enophile Institute, located in Smyrna, Georgia. The Institute is a wine school that is accessible, inclusive, and affordable for everyone, from casual consumers to industry professionals. Cheers to you, Chelsea. Welcome back to the podcast, Chelsea Young. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate you having me again. 100 episodes. 100 episodes. And you are part of this 100 episode journey, but you were episode 3.9 because I was still doing seasons. So season three, episode nine. And we recorded in November of 2020, November 21st. Like that is how long ago we last documented your journey. That's hysterical. And at the time, you had recently made a switch to wine distribution from roles in hospitality. And we talked about your goals and you had said wine education, increasing accessibility to wine education. Do you feel like you've achieved at least some of those goals that you told me about in November of 2020? I definitely have. I think I even surpassed my own expectations. I believe I got my results for WSET 3 and WSET diploma journey in June or July of 2021. And then in January of this year, so 2023, roughly a year and a half later, I sat for my last two diploma exams and put in my paper, dissertation, whatever you want to call it, just checking off the certification boxes. I think then I was also talking about French Wine Scholar, which I definitely put off to focus on diploma. So that's that's still kind of in the back pocket of things that need to be done. But I know my biggest goal was education. So the biggest news with that is, is I opened a wine school in Smyrna, Georgia uh, in September of 2022. That would be the Enophile Institute. So we're going on almost six months now and super excited. The big announcement is that part, is that part right there. But all of that that you just mentioned of the exams, the personal journey for yourself, that hadn't even begun when we last chatted. And that's what I think is really beautiful in a time where in the pandemic times and time was warping and who knows what was ahead. You just said, I have these particular things for my wine education, and you just went out there and did it. And I find that so cool. You dove right into that formal education and then helping other people pursue their wine education too. Why has it been so important for you in your wine career to pursue education, but then help others as well? Like, what do you get out of that? So when I first got into wine, when I first started taking wine really serious, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have somebody to kind of guide me through the process or to really help me in ways that I think could have been very integral in my development as a wine professional. And then as soon as I got really deep into it, you know, 2020 happened. So it was trying to build a community in a pandemic, which is really hard. It did happen, luckily. But I think the biggest thing is, is I heard a quote once, um, and it was actually said, I think at the last Master of Wine ceremony, when they brought in the new Masters of Wine, 
there was a quote that was used, you don't climb the ladder to pull it up behind you. You climb the ladder to reach down and pull up the next person. So that's kind of my like big mentality, uh, if you will, with all of this is just, it would have been a lot easier for me if I had had a mentor or just a community at that time to really motivate me and to help me with things. And I don't want anyone else to go through that if they don't have to. I want a very easy place for them to find a mentor or connect with a community or just learn more at their own pace, whether that be nice and slow and leisurely or W set diploma in a year and a half. <laughs> I'm going to say the Chelsea speed or the average <laughs> speed, because really I think about this, I didn't even ask you, but what is a typical time, if there is a typical, a typical time frame of accomplishing what you have, which you just kind of walked us through, but would you say that's abnormal or what's a typical time frame to do what you've done? As far as WSET is concerned, they say that diploma is a two to three year course. Most people I know on average take about two and a half to three years. I did some crazy things like I took two exams at once. I like as soon as I got results for one, I was already rolling into the next. I will say this, I do not recommend it for everyone. In fact, I probably don't recommend it for most people because it took me a very long time to realize how badly I burned myself out doing all of these things at the same time, having a full-time job, opening a business, studying. I really put my mind and my body kind of through the ringer, but I was also, I was in a good space to do it because I am a single woman. I don't have children that I have to care for. I have a job. My um, distribution company that I work for was extraordinarily supportive was willing to give me like time off. So long as I was hitting sales goals, they really didn't care. Um, I had a fantastic community. The Atlanta wine community is the best ever. And if I could like shout out the 30 or 40 people that helped me study or even things like brought me food to make sure I was eating, it was, <laughs> I, I can't even name everybody. There's too many people, but it was it was the right place in the right time, but it still took a serious toll. But I think with the amount of certifications that I've gotten and the time that I've gotten it is pretty rare. Pretty rare and pretty awesome. So congratulations on that. We all saw the time and effort you were putting into this. It wasn't like you were just checking off boxes. You were really invested in learning the content and making it the best effort to pass each of these tests. And you talk about the community, and I'm thinking back to the system that you created as you were studying <laughs> for the tasting portion of the third exam in the diploma series. You created a really cool system, and then you invited everybody in Blind Tasting Group to be part of this and pulling blinds for you. But what was that system? How did you study for blinds, and do you think it helped? 100%. This is going to sound kind of odd. I had that brainchild for that system one night and a hardcore insomniac. It was about 3.30 in the morning and out of nowhere, it just came to me and I went, that's genius. And I have a lot of those moments when I don't sleep. And then I read them the next morning and I'm like, that, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> but this is one that actually worked. So how WSET Diploma is set up, there is a unit in it called D3, which is referred to nicely as the beast or the death unit, and it covers all the still wines of the world. So if you take out everything that's sparkling and everything that's fortified, 
It is everything else. So all whites, all reds, all rosés, all dessert wine, and absolute entry tier $10 quality level to Grand Cru Burgundy. It covers the gambit of everything. And it's 12 wines that you taste blind. Those 12 wines are divided up into flights of three that all have a theme. So you'd have a flight that's like, these are all the same variety. So it would be, you know, three Chardonnays. And you have to not only be able to tell that it's Chardonnay, but then deduce roughly where it's from and explain why. Then there's a flight for three wines from the same country, three wines from the same region, and then what they call the mixed bag flight, which I hate that flight because <laughs> there's no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever. So what I did is, one, I'm extremely lucky to work in distribution with such a fantastic portfolio, and my job was very supportive with letting me pull samples for things. So this system would be very expensive otherwise. I also used a lot of other distributor friends to be like, hey, do you want a bottle trade? Uh, we even traded some bottles, Kelly, if I remember. Sure did. Um, and pretty much what I did is I took all of these bottles, I collected about 150 wines, and they all got numbered, one through like 150. And then I made a massive spreadsheet of like, okay, here are all the varieties that have multiple places that they're grown in. So pretty much all the international varieties. And then I took the numbers that were on the bottles and made little columns. So anybody could walk into my house, look at a bottle of wine and go, oh, if I want to make her a Chardonnay flight, I need to pull wine number 17 that's from Chablis, wine 34 that's from Russian River Valley, and wine 117 that's from Western Australia. And it was just a system. Then I just broke down all the different, you know, general possible flights that could happen, countries, regions, things of that nature. And then mixed bag was mixed bag where I'd go, you have 150 wines to choose from, pour me three. It, it doesn't matter. I'm remembering the spreadsheet moment when I saw what you had put together. And I just was like, you are an icon in the <laughs> wine world, but also in uh, data and Excel. I was very excited about the format that you created. It was very logical, but it also invited that community to participate with you. So we yeah. would be able to pull, we'd listen to your descriptions. I was learning how you were tasting because I was listening to you. And I appreciated seeing that live in action, just as someone who loves blind tasting. So it was really neat how you invited people in and you're still offering access. You're still organizing that logical approach to education. And I remember specifically sitting at your counter one day and you showed me the prototype of the not yet launched website for the Enophile Institute. And you're like, hey, I feel like doing this. This is my, this is my dream. Like, don't tell anybody yet, but like, this is what I'm doing. Is it everything that you envisioned it would be? It is everything and more. And as the person that just can't stop, there's still like so many things that I want to do. And I have to take a moment every once in a while and walk into the space and like take a deep breath and be like, can you just enjoy this? Like let yourself take the moment in. You're doing the thing that you at this point now has been like five years in the making. Enjoy the moment. And there's so many things that I'm super excited about that are coming up with it. I just get to have these moments every once in a while of like looking around the room and it takes a lot for me not to have the one glistening cheer like I did it. okay <laughs> I think that you need to pause and look at that Chelsea because this space is really cool it's in a really walkable district in Smyrna lots of parking I've never had it well unless there's like a farmer's market or a festival or something but that's rare but it's making again everything that you do in this path has been bringing people into the space and creating accessibility 
to these opportunities. So what types of classes and programming have you been offering since you opened? Because I know you kind of started small, but now your calendar is packed. So what is the goal for the types of programming and the types of classes? We offer, I hate saying levels because that makes people feel immediately like excluded from something. So I I use the word levels gently, but there's three levels. And my way of putting it is, so we have vineyard classes, which the vineyard's where it all starts. Yuck, yuck. So cute. Winery classes and then cellar classes because sometimes you just need a little more time. So kind of the idea is is all of the vineyard classes are going to be a 101 in some kind of aspect. So yes, we'll do things like France 101 for people that are just getting into wine or want to explore, but we're also doing this month Austria and Slovenia 101, which personally, I don't know much about Slovenian wine. So I would be most comfortable in that class. At the same time, the winery series classes are getting a little more into things terroir, winemaking, science, you know, the choices that people get to make within this, vineyard management, that kind of stuff. And then the seller classes is the full nerd out for me. So lots of things we've done, a vertical of Napa cabs. We did uh, the entire line of Lopez de Heredia, every skew that they produced, which was everything. Um, So exciting to show things like that. And then it gets really into the nitty gritty of, oh, here's the three vineyards from this place and the soil is different because of this. And that's why these taste different. Or, you know, here's five vintages side by side. This is what the weather was like and how that's different. Um, And then we've also had some really exciting master classes. Jane Loeb's came in from Legends and led a blind tasting and did a class on Southern Australia. And then of course, Every week we still do blind tasting on Sundays at 2.30. It's still there. It's still going. Currently two days a week, which are going to switch up soon, but we offer study hall. So I was lucky enough to get a small grant for educational resources. So I spent $1,500 on wine books and built a wine library. It's now, I believe, and I get to call it a library because it's over 100 books. And that is apparently the technical definition of a library. Everything from Wine Folly to Wines of Burgundy book that's like this thick to I've even gotten a couple of textbooks from uh, UC Davis. So anything that you could possibly need if you want to research, you don't have to spend $200 on the wine book. You can come use it during study hall, working on a whole checkout system, but they're also kind of my babies right now. I'm like, I don't really want them to leave the space. So that's kind of our programming right now. I'm currently in the process of making the Enophile Institute a WSET APP, so Wine Spirits Educational Trust APP. I just got the paperwork today to make it the first Wine Scholar Guild APP in the state of Georgia. So that would be French Wine Scholar, Italian Wine Scholar, and Spanish Wine Scholar. And then I'm also personally about to sit for my certified wine educator through the Society of Wine Educators. So... A lot more certification programming will be coming up shortly, hopefully summer-ish. I'm shaking my head because I said, oh, what are you What are you doing? And it's not just one thing. You're building off of all the knowledge that you've acquired because I'm hearing some of these topics and, and the formats. And I know that's 
a section of the study or the exam that you've taken. So you've personally experienced the depth of a lot of these topics, and now you're packaging it to a whole new audience. The certification part is huge because I know that's a big step to get that for the business. So keep us posted on that because that's going to be just widening again the opportunities for people in the area. Yeah. One of my main reasons for really wanting to open the school is doing WSET Diploma, the closest place right now that offers it is Washington, D.C. It's already a ridiculously expensive program. And then when you add in that you have to travel five times because there's five exams that require you to be sitting in a room, you've priced out a lot of people. The fact that there's not one in the Southeast really, really irritated me. So that's the main goal is to be the first place in the Southeast that offers WSET diploma, although that will take a couple of years. That's fine. And Wine Scholar Guild is the same way. You can take them online, but there are also several places that offer them in person. But again, the closest ones are like, I think Charlotte, North Carolina and Miami. I want more opportunities for people in Atlanta to be able to do the things that I've done without going so far into credit card debt. Um. <laughs> and travel, because a lot of people, if they have jobs, they might not have as supportive of a situation that you had. Yeah. So you're seeing the barriers and then you're finding ways to overcome them. I think that's really, really cool. You're lowering the barrier to entry by offering it locally. Can't wait to yep. see what happens in the future. And you're you're doing this work because I know it hits you at the core. I've, I've had conversations with you about the why and the purpose of these things, but you're also one of those people who uses social media for good. Not just your business for good, but you're doing good things online. You're communicating really well. I'm obsessed with your visual tasting notes that you started, a little series here. So where did the idea come from that you started documenting your tastings with photos and images instead of words? So I fall, personally, I fall into the neurodivergent umbrella. Um, for those that have never heard this fun little buzzword before, uh, most people are considered neurotypical, which means that your brain works in the average way. Neurodivergent just means that your brain works differently than others. So uh, I am somebody that has ADHD. And then I also have, I have synesthesia, but it's not as intense as a lot of people's. Um, so synesthesia is a thing where some of your senses kind of get mixed up. A lot of people say they can taste music or textures have colors, all of these kinds of things. So what my brain does, and it's something that I really had to kind of hone in and really learn. When I smell and taste things, it started out as colors and textures and like kind of wispy images and stuff like that. So certain wines would have a certain color, different textures had different patterns that I could see. It was very interesting. But I also realized that as I started to hone in all of my olfactory senses for wine training, those interesting images started to actually, this sounds crazy saying it out loud, but I love people's reaction. I see a three-dimensional space that I can actually interact with that will be associated with the things that I'm tasting and smelling. For example, Sancerre from like a warmer vintage. When I smell and taste it, if I close my eyes, I associate acidity with sparkles. And they're usually green or yellow because that's just kind of what your brain does. But then I walk into a space that looks like a 1950s kitchen, complete with the black and white checkered floor, key lime pie sitting on an open windowsill, 
and you can see a massive grassy hill with white sheets that are being blown in the wind. There's other things that will be in the space depending on what kind of Sauvignon Blanc it is. Sometimes there's a kitchen table with a massive basket of limes and grapefruit. There's usually things that are associated with like the texture or the acidity of the wine. Like sometimes the room is brighter and it's usually a higher acid Sancerre. Sometimes it feels like it's kind of dull in there. It's, it's really weird how my brain just kind of associates that. And I have no artistic talent whatsoever. So I have always been trying to find a way to kind of express these to people because trying to explain it to people, they're just like, what are you, what are you talking about? So my way of doing it was just finding different images and trying to like put them together to express kind of what I see without being able to actually paint a picture of the room or space or whatever that I'm, I'm standing in. And you have brought other people into this space because you post that. Mm -hmm. And then I think I've seen other people who learned in similar ways or have struggled to communicate and go, oh my gosh, Chelsea, that's exactly what I was trying to say. They've yeah. come and found you on social media for that exact reason. Yeah. And it's it's nice to have, at least lately, it seems like a lot of people are being diagnosed late with some things that fall into the neurodivergent umbrella. So they're kind of relearning different styles of like studying or different styles of like even just understanding their own minds. So getting more of these people and going, oh my gosh, this makes so much more sense now than it did before just by that. And especially when it comes to certifications that are so neurotypical and Eurocentric, it's better for me to be able to help people go, okay, this is what you see in your mind. Now you have to literally deconstruct the whole thing and be able to pick everything apart and put it into a tasting note that's appropriate. But I won't stand on that soapbox today. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take that one to happy hour. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's been amazing to see this because I think it just broadens the way that people communicate about wine. It allows people to see that those words, the vocabulary, can be personal and can be communicated differently if need be. So it's that type of leadership in wine education space that is really appreciated. So what are you looking forward to this year with all of these things that you've already accomplished, with all of this passion for what you're doing and the way that you are communicating about wine? What does 2023 have in store for you? What makes you pumped? Oh God, so many things. So one of the big things that we're going to kick off, hopefully mid to late spring as well at OI, uh, is a mentorship program. I want to do it as a speed dating kind of style where like everybody fills out a little sheet beforehand and then you get to like walk around the room and talk to a bunch of different possible mentors and then kind of get matched. You know, some people are looking for certifications and they need that mentor to like ride them and break them down and rebuild them. Some people like me personally, I would completely shut down in that style. So I need somebody that's just going to check in once a week and just go, hey, where are you at? Do you have any questions? Are you okay? How's your headspace? Did you drink any water today? And then there's other people that it's more career driven where, oh, I work in restaurants and I want to get into distribution. So you get a mentor that's going to help you kind of move from one space to the other. So that's super exciting. I believe I just got I hope I'm not saying this too early. Confirmation today that uh, Peter and Laura from Uncorked Access are going to come down to Atlanta in April and do 
a class for both uh, the deaf community and interpreters doing a class on tasting wine. And then they're also going to do a big masterclass for anybody that's in the hospitality industry that wants to learn basic sign for helping to get people's orders or understand what they like or don't like or what they're looking for in a wine. So and honestly, I'm just excited to take a vacation. Where um, are you taking? Where? When are you taking time off? And where are you going? Celebrate. Uh, so I also write these wine reviews for a small zine out of Seattle. It's called Blood of Gods, and it's actually a metal rock and wine pairing little zine. But they're doing a night of merriment concert and wine nerds up in Seattle and that's in July so I think I think I'm finally going there and then as soon as I get my diploma results I'm booking my flight to London for graduation next year <laughs> and probably going to take a good two to three weeks off to just go wander around vineyards or something I don't know oh we both had our fingers crossed but I don't think that I don't think we need to I think that the effort has passed and the rewards will come that's my personal thought on this and I've seen what you've done. So only good news ahead for you on this, Chelsea. I'm so, so excited. How can people find out more about OI, Enofound Institute, and reach out to you? Because last time it was giving people information on your personal account, which is so great. So that's where they're going to find the visual tasting notes. But how can they find out about OI? So you can find us on social media. Uh, so it's Enofile Institute. So Enofile is O-E-N-O-P-H-I-L-E, -E, Institute, one word on socials. Uh, and then the same thing, www.enofileinstitute.com uh, is our homepage. And then you can always reach out to me via email, either uh, chelsea at enofile.institute, yay, no.com on that one. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy to help anybody that I can with anything they might need, or if you just want to be a nerd and talk about wine. I'm here. I believe it. I've seen it. And I know that's true. You are not kidding about that. You're like, come and talk to me about wine. Let's just talk about wine all the time. Thank you so much for leading the way on this and creating a space for people to enjoy, interact, and engage with wine in new ways and bringing a lot of your fellow professionals into the space as well. I am so excited to see you at the 100th episode blind tasting that OI is hosting for the show. So thank you so much for that, Chelsea. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a real good time. Plotting and planning for this. So excited. So thank you, Chelsea. And I can't wait to celebrate with you soon. But cheers to you and your accomplishments. Have a great rest of your day, my friend. Thanks, Kelly. I appreciate it. Bye. Bye. My next guest is Torian Philpot, and when I last spoke with him on the show, he was the beverage manager at Bacchanalia here in Atlanta, but in 2022, he was offered the opportunity to work as a harvest intern out on the West Coast with the highly respected winemaking team that oversees Pietro Sassi, Domaine de la Côte, and Eveningland. He was involved in everything from sorting, barreling down, fermentation management, bottling, and even labeling. So I couldn't wait to hear how these experiences have impacted his wine education, and we talk about his current role now back in Atlanta overseeing the wine program at Taste Wine Bar and Market in the works. From Sam to Harvest Intern, we are so lucky to have his excitement for and knowledge of domestic wines here in the Southeast Market. So good to see you. Welcome to the 100th episode. Last time we recorded was April 12th of 2021. You were the beverage manager 
at Bacchanalia here in Atlanta. We talked about your experience growing up in Bermuda, your interest in agriculture and art and design and all these things. And we also talked about the restaurant scene in Atlanta. And I know you're still very involved in that, but are you still excited about what's happening in Atlanta's food and wine scene? I'm very excited about what's happening. I think since the last time that we talked, there have been more beverage professionals come to Atlanta. Um, you're seeing a change in the way that wine is put in front of people. I think you're seeing a lot more pop-ups and uh, places trying to implement a wine bar element or adding in music and kind of event style execution to to use as a platform for people to experience wine. So that's very exciting. I think in the time since we've spoken, there have been a number of marquee brands come to the market that we had always been waiting on. Scar of the Sea and Francois Chiden, a number of other producers that have always been like producers that you only see on Instagram and so forth that, that have been, you know, had years in other markets, but have never made it here. So that's probably the most exciting thing is the access has gone up and that has empowered beverage professionals to speak about those producers and experience them. And, and I've definitely seen the needle shift, I think, and Beaujolais still is a very big thing, but I think like Beaujolais was like the stronghold sommelier table wine. Whenever you went to an event, everyone had like every crew or a uh, special Beaujolais producer. I think now you're starting to see a bit more Loire and, you know, other affordable Burgundy options in Spain and Portugal. And, you know, there's there's definitely kind of this expansion of, of viewpoint of wine in the city. You always notice whenever I share about producers, you know wine through people. You can recall producers better than I can. I can go visually off of bottles. I'm pretty good at like label recognition, but I know that you know the people behind these wines and it shows. We've geeked out about our mutual appreciation for Barolo in particular. Are you still drinking lots of Barolo? I am not drinking as much Barolo. I think ironically went to Italy and I think I've been on a bit of a like a bit of a step away from Italy for the moment. Um, but I, I definitely still love it. I've since had uh, Berlotto, which um, is a legendary producer, but they approach their winemaking style much different than the rest of Barolo. They're, they're higher elevation. Um, and they also uh, make whole cluster Nebbiolo, which just on paper here and that, you would think that it would be an absolute tannin bomb, undrinkable, but it actually creates super lifted super aromatically profound and, and perfumed soft expression of Barolo. And I think my palate has just evolved, continuing to predominantly drink wine, but when it comes to red wine, looking for very soft, uh, perfumed, elegant wines, you know, a lot of Jura and Northern Spanish and uh, those kind of wines. So uh still love Barolo as a historic red wine producing appellation but i think from what i'm drinking more it's a bit of a food centric wine um, and not just a open at the table wine well that just means i can geek out with you about all kinds of other things from italy or <laughs> portugal or spain or whatever it is because you're always you're always finding really neat producers and the stories behind it so what is your current role now 
because it's not what it used to be. So what are you up to? As of last week, just started as the wine manager and um, head of wine growth for Taste Wine Bar and Market in the works. It's a kind of run like a tasting room, uh, 48 wines on tap in Enomatic Systems. Uh, the owner, Ben, actually comes from a winemaking background and worked for some some pretty heavy-hitting wineries and wanted to take his love for wine and allow people to kind of take their own journey. Uh, he brought me in to help grow the business in many ways, but execute the arms of tasting, uh, wine club and choosing what goes on the machine to give range to what's available for people to drink. It's a very unique way to move the needle a bit with the general public because you get wine drinkers come in, but you also then you just get the kind of overflow of people going to Scofflaw or the food court um, and see the wine. And it's very kind of exciting and you get to go and read a little about the wine and try a number of things and i think it's a unique platform where i say it's almost like a art gallery where we are doing the work behind the scenes to procure the wine uh, procure the 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 art and then when you come in we just walk you through the gallery and talk to you about the art on the wall um, and so that gives you this unique platform to move people in these parallels from where they usually sit in their wine drinking journey to say, hey, you know, you like X, why don't we try this? And so, yeah, you know, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's my, my current role and it's, it's been fun so far. We're going to do some exciting things, you know, where we're looking at putting a, a whole flight of Riesling on there from completely dry to Auschleser, a flight of rosé, really looking to do some cool stuff with Spanish wine because we're coming into these warmer months. How do we continue to drive the drinking towards red wine as well as white wine? So what what does the landscape of red wine look in that sense with, you know, what's bound to be a quite warm summer, to say the least? Um, so it's been fun so far. You get to be creative in this role because 48 wines, you are curating art on the wall. You're creating a gallery. <laughs> People come in there and there's such a variety of things. And that means you get to stretch your own wine education while you're doing this because you're selecting not just by the glass or whatever it is, you're selecting 48 that are accessible to people when they walk in the door. Wow. Absolutely. That is so fun. It's fun for someone from the restaurant background to be in that role and getting that direct feedback from consumers as they walk in. Like that's got to be a really neat aspect of this wine bar. 100%. And having 48 wines quote unquote, by the glass, not including sparkling, and have it on a system that uh, means that your loss is very low, means that then you can focus on how do you become hyper-specific with what you're doing through wine tasting and the retail side uh, that we also have. So whilst I would love to put you know, Listan Blanco from, from the Canary Islands on the, on the wall. Uh, it probably doesn't make sense for a number of reasons, most, most notably that it's not necessarily always available. But then you can do a Canary Islands tasting, which then expands the palate of the average drinker when they come back to just patronize the business and drink what is there. 
what a fun way to be exploring wine and to change it up that often and just have little tastes along the way. This is really great to have someone like you in this role because you're always looking at the whole world of wine. I know that you drink a lot of different things and you have experience in different places. But one time I posted a wine, this is since you've been on the show, I posted a wine from a bottle share and then you told me, you sent me a message. You're like, well, the 2022 vintage of that exact wine was, and I quote this, partly made by yours truly, end quote. <laughs> Please explain this. I was blown away. Yeah. Between the time that we last talked on the show, I went on to open Mujo on the west side. Um, and while I was there, I got the opportunity put in front of me to go do harvest. I had been offered to do harvest before in other places. And it just, you know, at the time it just never worked out or but I was like, I'm going to do this. And so that opportunity was with Provenage, which is the overarching company owned by Sashi Mormon and Raj Parr. And so I knew that I would get to see a bit behind the curtain and experience this amazing harvest in an area that I'm very passionate about, which is Santa Barbara, um, with wines that I've always loved. Um, but I didn't know that I would get to see the production and ultimately be a, an important and integral part of the production during harvest of all of these wineries that I love so much. So Piedra Sassi was one of those, as well as Domaine de la Cote, uh, Sandy, and then Evening Land in Oregon. Yeah, it was unbelievable to work side by side with that team, uh, all of them being really amazing to have spent some incredible evenings drinking wine, talking with the likes of Sashi, and getting to really make such a range of varieties, you know, Domaine de la Cote, Sandy, and Evenland are um, predominantly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay focused, but there was a bit of Aligote that we made. Got to pick Shannon from a vineyard in Oregon and then make Syrah under Piedra Sassi and see how that all comes together, how the grapes come in, which might I say Syrah as a cluster, as a grape cluster is probably the most aesthetic grape cluster that you'll see. As far as like the size of the berries, the tightness of the cluster, the size of the cluster, you know, I, that was the biggest surprise initially was how small Vitis vinifera usually is. Like there's the, the grapes are so tiny and then Syrah comes in, you're like, oh, okay, this looks like a grape. Um, but then to put that in there and three days later, you start to see and smell what smells like Syrah and all these kind of things was really, really interesting. And to see right in front of you, you know, obviously... Uh, for those that are not familiar, for instance, Rimrock is a very special vineyard. It's planted e extremely close to the ocean, pretty much in somebody's backyard. It's Syrah grafted to old Chardonnay rootstock or Chardonnay vines. Um, it's grown in an area that Syrah really shouldn't grow. But through different farming techniques, you're able to get an exceptional wine. And then to see that and then to see the Biennacito blocks come in and... The, uh, and the, the other box in Santa Barbara, and then literally pretty much applying the same winemaking techniques to all of them to just see this individual character come out of nowhere and to quickly be like, okay, you can see which blocks are what they are. And undoubtedly, it has to do with place. Like Rimrock is special. It just has this special character to it. Um, and we saw that as we drank older bottles next to like legends like Klopp and Rene Rostang and all these 
not only held up, but like it, one evening we opened a 2012 Rimrock and it was the wine of like, it was the Syrah on the table. It was by far the best wine on the table. And there was Klopp and not Alamon that night. I think there was a bit of maybe Baltazar or something on the table and it was like far and away the best wine. Um, and so to see that that could be created in the United States with the right intention, with the right farming, with the right place was special. So going to work with those guys, amazing opportunity, one that I'll you know, cherish forever. You know, getting to go in the vineyards, finally see that, see it all make sense right in front of you. Why certain vineyard sites are what they are, and you know why the soil type works and the exposure to the ocean. And ten miles north in Buellton, it was twenty degrees hotter almost. You know what I mean? Like Santa Barbara was like fifty-five to sixty degrees and never shifted. It was wild. Yeah, that that was amazing. You are bringing all of this knowledge now back to your conversations, not only with your customers, but also with your fellow wine professionals, because I also know that you were working in these amazing places with other Harvest interns, and you were really having that that dialogue with the winemakers. So what did you learn from the other people that were working with you? Did you all come there for the same reasons, or what was that like? What was the camaraderie like among all of you? Yeah, so um, that was also something I didn't know what to expect beforehand but the 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 amount of people that you see in and around the cellar every day uh people who are who are coming in for instance Alice from Amviv when I met her I was literally going to uh open the door to where the vineyard samples come in that we crush and test the sugar and all that and I just listened to a podcast on the way on the plane over like two days earlier with her and I see this Prius pulling up behind me, and I'm like, well, this person just kind of creeping up. She pulls up, she opens the door, she stops, and she says, hey, what's up? And I'm like, hey. She's like, hi, I'm Alice. I work in the vines. And I didn't think anything of it. And then two days later at, at dinner, they're like, yeah, Alice this, Alice that. I'm like, hey, you guys wouldn't have to be talking about Alice Anderson from Omdiv, would you? They're like, yeah, that's Alice. And I'm just like, whoa. Like, you, you know, like, so you start to see that like everyone has a hand, and she helps with farming and all these kind of things. But... I get there and I remember in my interview, the Salamast at the time was like, yeah, your, your fellow interns are Louis Auguste from David, from Domaine David Dubond and the nephew of the owner of Veda Malberg winery in the Wachau. And I'm like, at the, at the time, like it did, it didn't register and I get there. And man, you know, that, that's another exciting thing is you come back with like these deep friendships, you know, getting to spend harvest with someone who wakes up can you imagine what it's like to be a burgundian and and spend your entire life the only thing that you really like you're within this world that is looked at with so much awe the most important wine region in the world and being the son of a winemaker and all of these things and then to meet lulu as he as he calls himself we all call him and he's so down to earth he plays the saxophone he's like He's his own person. He's just, you know, the life of the party, this, you know, this kind of like shining light and just like so cool, so down to earth, wants to like learn things and take it back and challenge the the status quo there was super cool. And then Christoph coming from a lineage of, you know, his uncle owns a hyper small production uh, winery in the Vakao, you know, makes I think less than 2,000 cases of everything, like all together. 
super sought after, super small production. Bruna and Riesling from some of the best sites in the Bacau um, also making a skin contact Bruna that looks like Pinot Gris. Just crazy. And, and learning from them, learning about their cultures, learning about what wine means to them, learning what it means to grow up in a family that's around wine. Lou telling us about stories about him when he was 13 running through the cellar and super cool, you know. <laughs> I felt very accepted in that, but then also like, wow, I was growing up fishing. I didn't even know what a wine vine, <laughs> I didn't even know what a vine looked like. And you're like, you know, foot stomping grapes at 13 and listening to music in the cellar and taste cuvées for blending, you know, at a young age and flying around at 16 years old to Japan with, with Egan Muller. We can't compete with that at all. 16, or, or, I, I, he might have even been younger, with, with the legendary Egan Muller and his dad and selling wine. And, you know, so. You're like, we are not the same. We are just not I the same. I was just like, <laughs> all right, all right, Lou. I mean, yeah, cool. You know, I, got, I, have, I have cool friends like that too, you know. I think it's really cool that you have those connections now because you will carry that, not only the knowledge that you got while you were working Harvest, but those connections around the world with people with similar passions and similar techniques that now they've picked up. So this is really beautiful, this Harvest experience. Has it made you want to go work Harvest anywhere else? Anywhere oh, in particular that's like bucket list. Yeah, you want to um, do it again. Yeah, and everyone was like, you know, if, if, you, if you need a word, like I got you. Um, others were like, you might as well just take the harvest money you've made now and go work a harvest in the other hemisphere. I contemplated the idea of reaching out to somebody in South Africa. I, I've been thinking about it quite a bit. We have some mutual friends that have some friends that uh, are in, you know, like I, I would love to do, for instance, like harvest in, in the Canary Islands, which I met someone out there who worked at Puro Roque, who worked a little bit with Laura Lorenzo. and so. I would love. I would love to do harvest in somewhere in Spain would be amazing. Uh, just you know the weather, speaking the language and so forth. South Africa would be great. I've heard a lot of great things about doing harvest in South Africa. Um, out west, especially the guys working in Santa Barbara, a lot of them seem to do harvest in Australia. But there's also option to go back and do more harvest in Oregon um, with other producers. I had the great pleasure of meeting the head winemaker at Lingua Franca. And he was like, you know, if you want to come do harvest, like I need good people who've, who've done it before to come. So, you know, do that. So I don't know. I'm, I, it's definitely something I, I want to look at um, doing more, it, you know, when you're in it, you know, it's, it's, it's very similar to working in a restaurant, you know, 14 hour days and so forth. And it's, it's hard work, but, looking back it's it was an amazing experience you know there's just something amazing about working with organic material and and the process of making wine is is quite fun i mean other than sitting around waiting for white wine press loads but um other than that you know punch downs and and you know monitoring the the life cycle of a of a ferment you know the barreling process and all these kind of things is very very exciting so you are going to go on tour. I'm going to be like, where are you going to harvest next? You're just going to be flying around the world yeah. and the learning. The Canary Island sounds like the place. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Okay. Well, then that sounds wonderful because you're going to learn something new at each of these places. Yes, it's harvest in general, but you're going to learn something new about each producer and each place that you go to, especially because you had a fascination with Santa Barbara, for example. You'll learn something unique about each place and the styles that are happening there. Does it make you a better 
wine professional to have done the harvest experience? Yes, I think it gives you a different perspective. I think there are things that we take for granted on the sales side of wine that you do not and ultimately probably cannot know until you've been on the production side. Um, I think there's a lot of terminology that we throw around that we don't truly know the meaning of. Um, and then when you make wine and you you learn how to make wine through carbonic maceration and you see that successfully happen and or you um, you you truly do a barrel regimen and you learn what it means to have 25% new oak. I mean, how many times do you are you working with Burgundy or something and they're like, oh yeah, it's only 20% new oak. And like up until I up until I went and actually put Chardonnay into a barrel with old two and three year use barrels and new barrels. And then you're like, oh, okay, that's what they mean. They just mean that the percentage of oak that these vessels are within an array of say 10 barrels when you do a barrel down are new. You know, all of these kind of things, what it truly means to to see some of the winemaking techniques, these kind of things, when you actually see them happen, you're like, oh, wow, that clicks. That makes sense. When, when, you're, when you're in a vineyard and you see the kind of, you know, we talk about like, oh, the topsoil's this and da 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 and that, the other. Um, there are certain things that I think even when you read literature around it, it doesn't truly make sense until you are there, you know. Um, I was lucky enough to go to Spain last year and go to Monsant and see a winemaker who's in a very unique area uh, where the predominant soil composition is, is mainly sand. And he's also in a somewhat cooler part of the greater Priorat uh, Monsant area. And it isn't until you put your hand in that sand and you're like, oh, wow, no, this is like, this is really sand. Like, I, th I thought it was like, you know, somewhat hard composition of sand. But no, it's like not quite being on the beach, but it's, it's pretty close. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, wow, no, like, wow, like wine grows in this? This is, this is crazy. And you see truly old vines, you know, that are like tree stumps. And like, these are all kind of things that we see on a tech sheet or we read and we're like, oh, yeah, we understand that. And then. You see it happening, you're like, oh no, that that's not what I thought it was, you know. And then you're touching the soil, you're actually holding it in your hands, you're smelling all of this happening in the winery and getting that feel, that characteristic of place, of grape, of soil, of all of that. And then you, with your skills and customer service and your restaurant background, can then communicate that to others. And that's what excites me the most. And I have to thank you for bringing that energy back to your roles here in Atlanta. We're lucky to have you in the community talking about these details. It's really important. Well, thank you. And I, and it's, it's also, it also brings me a great deal of pride to take domestic wine seriously and to search deep to find expressions of, of domestic wines that fit the palate of old world wines in some way to continue to push the idea that what we're doing is special. I don't think what I don't think people understand the wealth of of resource that we have here because of what comes to the general public. It can be so narrow, 
you know, some of the old vine plantains of Spanish varieties that are in California. You know, when I went to, when we all went to see Raj in, in St. Louis Obispo and see plantains of Mencia and Trousseau and, and really get to like see that, oh man, like all of these things can and do grow here. You know, there's a vineyard that he and the guys at Scar of the Sea are using that's in St. Louis Obispo that's planted to from from what studies have shown is planted to serene the old clone of Syrah that's found in Chaillot and Renard in Cornas that you know the famous Terry Alamon uh uses you know and like to see to, to see these discoveries you know to see the uh the Lone Wolf project they're making wine from like 130 year old Palomino and Zinfandel in Cucamonga in Los Angeles you know and like I understand that like it's it's very hard to to taste so many different wines right especially when what's available to you can be so narrow right we have we get we get allocated this we get we get these wines and it's very hard to see other things but I just like the wines coming from just outside of Madrid you know these Grenache grown on sand that can give you that sensation and that focus that lean in the direction stylistically of Rios. I hate to say that because Rios is what it is. It's it's very autonomous in its in its thing. But you know, like to to see these wines with so much finesse coming from areas that are hot because of farming and at price points that allow for people to have the same enjoyment that they get from these wines that they seek, right? Burgundy producers can have this parallel to wines of other areas that do not cost you burgundy pricing, but are super enjoyable to drink and allow for those producers, whether it be California, whether it be Oregon, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff coming out of Oregon. I mean, keep your eyes open for Columbia Valley. I, the best Syrah I had domestically on that side that wasn't Piedra Sassi was from Columbia Gorge, Hood River, you know, all these things. We have all this coming into our lap that give a an amazing color palette to to paint with to speak about to champion what's happening here and to continue to add zest to the wine world and in, in in which we have some control over um here in this market you know and, and allow for us to find a diversity of things to just enjoy at a, at the dinner table or, or wherever we're enjoying them because unfortunately there's not enough of these really high-end wines that we all want in the world to get. So we, got, we have to find other things to, um, to talk about, to, to, to serve the needs of our guests, whether that's um, you, know, you to talk about on your platform, me serving guests literally or in, in wine shops. You know? the, more, the more we find diversity within the wine world, the more we have the ability to access it and always have the ability to, to enjoy it. You just got me really excited about the future of domestic wine, my friend. I am very, very pumped. You saw it firsthand while you were working in these places. You have your eye on what's coming. So thank you for getting that energy out and getting people excited about what's ahead for us here and what we're learning and bringing that knowledge to these beautiful places. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I love this. What's the best way for people to find you these days? What's the best way to connect if they want to talk to you about wine? Because clearly you like talking about wine and I know people are going to want to talk about wine with you. So what's the best way to find you? Um, on social media, Poppy underscore. Um, come to taste. I'll be doing some cool tastings and events. Yeah, last thing is 
drink more Riesling. That's the thing to do in 2023. Did you just read my mind? <laughs> I've actually said this. I'm on a tirade to to get good Riesling, especially Dryer styles in people's glass. It is the enjoyable, affordable wine play right now. I mean, you can get some incredible Riesling for pennies compared to other regions. So yeah, drink more Riesling. Good, because that is one of my 2023 goals is my drink Riesling year. So I will be uh, asking you for some input on my choices here as I go down, <laughs> as I go down this yeah, journey. Yeah, absolutely. So cheers to that, my friend. Thank you so much for coming back on the show and sharing your updates and your stories and your harvest experience. It's been beautiful to watch your journey. So thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been fun. Next up, I caught up with Larissa DeBose, a wine educator and business savvy wine and spirits professional with a unique background in business development in wholesale wine and hospitality. Since the last time she was on the show, she has become the national director of beverages for an airport concessionaire, including the popular wine bar concept, Vino Volo. We talk about this journey in her career and how she continues to redefine wine culture and bridge the gap from wine novice to connoisseur through empowering a new generation of wine lovers. I'm not the only one who has been so inspired by her work because her efforts were just recently recognized by being included in the inaugural cohort of Wine Enthusiast Magazine's Future 40. She also mentions what her word of the year is. Thank you, Larissa, for what you do for Atlanta and beyond. Good to see you, Larissa. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> so honored. I'm so grateful. This is this sparks all the joy beyond grateful. Thank you so much for having me be a part of this amazing and illustrious occasion. A hundred episodes is nothing to sneeze at. So congratulations and cheers. So proud of you and just love watching your journey and cheering super loudly on the front row. You're doing amazing. Yeah, I'm going to start, I'm going to start getting real emotional here talking to all these incredible people who have been part of the show forever. You were episode number four. I looked back, number four. Are we, you serious? Yeah, we recorded in January of 2019, the before times, like time has warped since then. But also, I think it's important to point out that I clearly didn't know what I was doing at that time. And you still said yes. <laughs> you said yes. So thank you for taking a chance on me and like my little oh. four episode show. You know, it's so funny because I'm literally thinking the same thing. You took a chance on me. <laughs> okay. There's just something about it. I think we've always kind of connected on this, but I don't know what made you say yes, because at that point I had no proof of concept. I literally didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I, let's be honest, I still don't know what I'm doing most days, but at that point I certainly didn't. And you jumped on. So episode four. And at that point you were the on-premise manager in Georgia for two mm -hmm luxury California-based wineries, and you had also founded The Lotus and the Vines. You were creating approachable content. You were speaking to all levels of wine consumers. Now, I know that a whole century of warped time has passed since 2019, but let's just start, kick it off at the present, since we're here and oh we're now, God. and I'm looking at your beautiful face. Yeah. What is your What is your current role now? Because it's not what it used to be. Yeah, you just took me in a time warp because I'm like, was it really that long ago? January yeah. of 2019? Yeah. <laughs> I'm literally just taken aback by that. 
So fast forward. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I am currently <laughs> the national director of beverages for an airport concessionaire called Paradis Lagardere. Um, we're one of the largest air, airport concessionaires in the country, but we're most notable for, especially from a beverage perspective, is Vino Volo, which is one of our brands. It's a proprietary brand underneath our banner. And so a big portion of my role is to help with programming and core products and mm, all the things, but it's been quite the journey. So I'll be stepping into a year at the end of April, and it's been quite a wild ride. I am every day, literally every day, I learn something new. <laughs> so That's amazing, though. That's the kind of type of career change that you really want. If you want that challenge, you want to be saying that you learn every day. But what made you confident to take a leap into this new phase of career? Because it was definitely a 180 from what you were doing. You know, one of the things has been really consistent for me, a consistent lesson and something that I, you know, try with my husband to instill in our daughter is to get out of your own way. And I remember seeing the job posted on LinkedIn in November of 2021. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds like a really interesting job. I knew that if when I submitted my resume, I knew my, my resume didn't tell the story that I could tell. Um, so I put my resume and I applied. I didn't hear anything. And I think I didn't think anything of it. Just kept on doing my thing. And again, I just knew that I was ready for a shift in my career. And I also knew that I didn't want to leave the company that I was with to carry another bag with different wine, right? Like I wanted to do something else. So again, edifying and helping teams and coming up with strategy and programming and things of that sort. So fast forward to February of 2022, I get a random call from a headhunter and her name was Wendy. She changed my life and she was trying to be kind of um, covert about the description of the job. And I, I'm like, is this parody stock right here? <laughs> She's like, yes, it is. <gasps> I have been waiting to talk to somebody. I cannot wait to talk to you. Let's figure this out. And so from there, that was all she wrote. They, you know, I, I gave them the full rundown. I gave them the ins and outs of my resume, the full story. And then they really prepped me and they, you know, sent all the information over to my, my now VP and COO. And yeah, when I first set my first interview, I knew that my VP and I would work really well together. He's a veteran in the industry. Everyone knows him in Atlanta dining. Um, just really great pedigree, really sharp gentleman. And then when I met our COO, that's where I really saw my worlds collide in the realm of one of the first questions I asked was, you know, what are some DEI initiatives that your company has? And she started to just put it out there and I believed her. And I thought to myself, wow, I can actually join a company where the work that I've been trying to do to make our industry represent the world that we live in in a more authentic way, I'm actually potentially going to align with a company that has similar vision and still then get to be that strategic entity within an organization to really help build teams and give them the resources to be their absolute best while picking out some really cool wines, right? Grace of God, it really was, I, you know, for all the crazy and the crazy dynamics of the airport world and again, like just all the nuances and all the new things that I learned, 
I remember like you prayed for this. You you prayed for this. You wanted this. And I am stretched. I am drinking from a fire hose still, but the water pressure has subsided a bit. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been cool just to see some of the intention um, come through and to be able to now go into the airports and see programming that with our team collaboratively, we were able to, you know, bring to fruition. So right now we're Black History Month is almost over, but we just launched a new flight called Behind the Vines and we kicked that new flight off with Black History Month. And so this particular flight gives our locations, our stores, the opportunity to elevate a wine, uh, a story that doesn't always get recognized, seen, and celebrated. So you have Black History Month, you have Women's History Month, Asian Pacific Islander Month, Native American Heritage Month, you know, all these different months that celebrate um, these communities that don't always get that. So we're going to have some Women's History Month programming as well. We just finished our RFP for our first national program with Vino Volo since the pandemic. So it's been about three plus years. It's been a wild ride, but I love it. I absolutely love it. And yeah, when I spoke to you back in 2019, no clue. I had no clue that this is where I would be sitting three years later in a completely different space, but so grateful. (laughs) You didn't know, but it sounds like it's absolutely where you were meant to be. Like this is just, there is no way you could have planned accordingly. You're Mm -hmm. saying it's okay to submit an application on LinkedIn because you just never know. But then I really appreciate you saying, you know, my on-paper story wasn't the full story. Just get me in the room as somebody. Let me talk because you light up a room when you go in. So once they got to see you and what you offer that's not tangible on paper, to me, I think that's the epic way to land that job. Yep, absolutely. Without question, that's it's, you got to take a chance on yourself right? You know, like it's so easy to stay safe. It's so easy to, you know, stay within the lines. And I just had a conversation with the young lady yesterday where our industry is so dynamic and weird that way. Most of us, wine found us. Um, If you went to college, um, more than likely you didn't go to college to be in the wine industry. You, You were doing something, you were in college studying something completely different, right? And so wine found us. And then from there, you have these paths that don't take a traditional path. If you want to be a doctor, well, traditionally, you go to school, you go to college, you go to medical school, you have a residency, maybe get a fellowship. You know what I mean? Like there's a path. Um, No, I don't know anybody that has a linear path in our industry. And that's what I love about it. And why not in this industry be disruptive? It doesn't have to be what it's always been. I think that the last several years have shown us that it can't be what it's always been. And um, why not be a part of the change? And so, yeah, when I submitted my resume, I didn't think anything about it. I'm just like, yeah, there's a ton of talented wine professionals here in Atlanta, um, of course. <laughs> but when they called me, I'm like, okay, man plans, God laughs. And been laughing ever since. (laughs) This is so good. I mean, you're on the go now all the time. What is your favorite part about this job? I mean, Sky Miles, hello, racking those up. But what what is your favorite part about being on the road and seeing these places all over the country? So the joke is once I hit diamond, you can't talk to me. (laughs) I love it. Yes. Yeah. No, it's time for me to board the plane now. They called my, my, they called my section. Thank you. Excuse me. Let me go to the front of the line. Excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah, no, I'm going to lay it on thick right now. 
because right now my husband is diamond. So I'm uh, always like riding his coattails. Like I'm with him. <laughs> I got to get on the plane with him. We're together. But no, so there's so many different facets that I enjoy. The travel is unique because even though I've, I've actually been not on the road that often, I, this past week kicked off a busy stint for me. Busy is an understatement, but most of the time when I'm traveling, it's a day trip. And, you know, social media is just so funny. It's all smoke and mirrors because when I get to the airport, when I land, very rarely do I even leave security. I just hang out on the terminal and connect with the stores and connect with our teams and I get back on the plane. So I'm like, unless it was raining outside, I don't even know what the weather was. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. You're like a magician then because it's like, what city are you in? But you never left the terminal. This is great. Never left the terminal. It's the wildest thing. Yeah. Like my, I probably won't do that again. This, this one trip, Denver, I did a day trip to Denver and that was aggressive. I'm like, yeah, I was really tired the next day. Just, okay. You flew out in the morning. You changed two time zones. You marched through the airport in about three hours, got back on the plane. <laughs> yeah. So I won't do that anymore, but for the most part, yeah, it's just a day trip. I'll typically catch like an eight o'clock, nine, 10 o'clock flight, and then I'll be home somewhere between six and eight. And it's normally when I'm on my typical cadence, it'll be once a week. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Meeting all the different teams is really awesome. So my first year, I really just wanted to connect. I wanted to get to know everybody. I'm an individual that it has a servant's heart. And so as a servant leader, um, as opposed to just coming in and creating new policy and, you know, changing all these things, like, let me find out what's been going on with you. <laughs> Let's get to know each other. Tell me what's working. Tell me what's not working. Um, how can I help you is really how I come into um, the, the stores and meet the teams. And it's been really cool because our division, the dining division, Vino Volo, there's just so much passion and there's such such a love for wine. And I'm on this new kind of campaign where I'm like, more wine professionals, beverage professionals need to know about the airport industry because you can have a truly thriving career in the concessionaire business, right? And so we're this hidden entity, if you will. Most people, they'll go into the airport, they'll see Chick-fil-A, they'll see the Gordon Biersch, the P.F. Chang, but they don't know that there's an operating company behind the scenes running that. They just think it's just another franchise, but there's an entire industry that's thriving and we need more beverage professionals. And so seeing what I've seen amongst our teams, I'm like, and it's the same thing. How did you find Vino Volo? It's always the most random story. <laughs> and I love that because it's so indicative of wine. It's like, no, it, it kind of found me. But everyone that comes in, they stay. There's just this great tenure um, that I haven't seen since I first got into the industry on the distributor side. I remember being so impressed. And this was back in 2010 with the tenure in the room. And even now, it's just so hard, you know, especially after the great resignation and everything like tenure is just kind of this taboo term, but there's still like this great tenure within our organization. It's something really fascinating. People get into the airports and they don't leave. And so it's been pretty cool. <laughs> it takes the right kind of energy to be yeah. jazzed about that every day. And I will say, I mean, you've You've influenced me, Larissa. I see Vino Volo and I stop. I'm like, I stop because I'm like, oh, let me go see what Larissa may have influenced at the, at the shop. So I go and I get flights and it's just really fun. Like that's a great way for me to pre-flight. I like to get my flights before my flight. Vino Volo offers that. And then you're behind the scenes helping all that happen. Yeah. Well, it's really cool too, because what I love about our programming is that 
So each location has autonomy to curate what we call our discovery flights. And then my role is to work with our tasting team, tasting panel team, to curate what we call our core flights. So we have four flights at our core flights, and you'll see those four flights at each location. Um, but now it's going to be more of a consistent look from one location to the next. Whereas for the discovery flights, each location gets to show their local flavor. And so if there's a local wine region that's really notable that they want to highlight, like Michigan and Texas, they, they love to do that, right? And so you really get that local flavor and what the ethos is for that team. And so that's why I love it. You'll get the consistency, but you'll also get something different for each Vino Volo. It's really cool. And there's this... Um, we have this uh, descriptor, if you will. If you look at the flight, there's normally two descriptors that there's a fruit and a non-fruit. And I haven't tasted a wine yet that that fruit and non-fruit have not worked. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm like, it's the most, I'm like, how did y'all land on this? It's the most fascinating thing. Next time you go, look at the flight card and you'll see those two keywords. It's a fruit descriptor and a non-fruit descriptor. And they're always on point. It's amazing. So fun. That's <laughs> catching a whole new audience of people yeah. to help them just get to know wine and have that conversation yep. while they're yep. traveling. Yep. This is not surprising to me at all that you enjoy that leadership role, but also getting to know the people around you because you've had some incredible recognition from your peers in the industry. So we'll just start with the big one that I have to ask you about. <laughs> There's been a lot, but let's start with this one. How did it feel to find out that you were selected to be in the inaugural cohort of Wine Enthusiast Magazine's Future 40 Larissa? How did that feel? Kelly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> your face oh is everything. Gosh. Oh, I know it's yeah. an audio platform, but your face is everything. I know. Man, I thought it was like a spam email. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling you might say that. <laughs> it, was like, it was like 10 o'clock. I was getting ready for bed. My husband had COVID, so he was like in another room. Um, I opened this email and I just burst into tears. I'm like, no way. Mm -hmm. This is a dream that was, you know, they say a, a dream deferred is not a dream denied, right? But for me, with anything for that particular list, it's like, well, I'm over 40, so I'm going to find that dream somewhere else <laughs> because I can't be 40 under 40. I've, you know, aged out of that. And so I didn't even realize, I think I heard that they, yes, I did hear that they were changing the um, age parameters, but again, I'm like, Ooh, that's even more competition. <laughs> oh, well, I'll find it somewhere else. Right. And then I got the email and I burst into tears. I went into the room where Dre was uh, <laughs> quarantining. Like, I don't care. <laughs> you crossed COVID boundaries to enjoy this news. I together. did. And he's like, he had actually fallen asleep. And I'm like, I'm like crying. And I'm like, I come in the room, I'm like, it's good news. It's good news. Because <laughs> he's like waking up like, what's going on? You're crying. I'm like, it's good news. It's good news. <laughs> yeah, so that was that. And it was a pretty, you know, quiet process. Like they don't tell you a ton of information. They just kind of tell you, you know, where to show up. And But yeah, no, I was completely honored, humbled. In disbelief, I just, again, like, I just thought that that ship had sailed for me. And, you know, I don't do what I do for the recognition. You know what I mean? But it sure feels good. <laughs> yes. It sure feels good, right? Yes. So, yeah. Um, it's been a really 
great experience. Um, my company has been so supportive. I went from a space where I had to kind of be very um, covert about what I was doing with the Lotus and the Vines, whereas with my current company, they knew it because again, I told my whole story. Yes. <laughs> so the wine education and why wine education is so important to me and why I want to bring wine education to our teams and all those things, this is the weird thing. So a lot of times you have your passion project as you know something that you eventually want to be your full-time career. My passion project actually led me to my next best step in my career, which Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Right. Yeah. Like had it not been for the Lotus and the Vines, I wouldn't have the platform that would have gotten me to the space to be able to have the story, the story and the, the rationale as to why I'm the right fit for this role. So yeah, it's, it's really cool. And so yeah, I can't wait to see who the next cohort is. I don't know if we get a chance to help pick, but if I can put a name in the room, I'm going to always bring a new name because I just think it's so important. My name has been put in rooms that I couldn't have, I could have never imagined that somebody would bring my name into a conversation and that it would manifest to some foundation. It would manifest to all the different rooms that I've been in. And I'm grateful. And I deem it necessary and obligatory for me to do the same. So, yeah. I see you do that. You say, you know, that you you make an intention to do that. And I know you do. You're always supporting other people at any point in their career. I see this from Atlanta based here, but also when you're traveling, when you're with your role with Sound Foundation, you're always lifting up other people. I honestly genuinely see that. So thank you for leading by example with that. I think it's so important in this industry. And all of this time, through the recognition, through your learning process, you also have pursued your own personal wine education exponentially since I spoke with you. So you are, because I had you at my house because I knew that I needed to learn more champagne uh, things from you. You have made that a goal. What made you want to achieve that champagne master level with the oh Wine Scholar Guild? Why champagne? Well, I love bubbles. That is my love language. Um, but that was actually a great opportunity through Black Wine Professionals. And so Julia Coney, um, she founded Black Wine Professionals. There was a partnership with Laurent Perrier, and they issued five scholarships to um, individuals that were part of Black Wine Professionals. And because I was the director of education, I got grandfathered into that because, of course, we need to go through this together. So yeah, that's exactly what happened. And yeah, I mean, that was such a great the, the process, what we learned, Michelle, who was actually a part of the Future 40 cohort as well, she was leading along with their team, leading these master classes, just taking it to the next level. Um, it was really awesome. And so that was just a great flash of great programming that came through Black Wine Professionals. And so, yeah, I am so grateful for that. That test was hard. <laughs> um, there's probably something else in my future. Um, I just have, it's the bandwidth at this point, but I'll be picking up a book again, more than likely at the latter part of this year. I just, there's still too much going on in my new, my new role to, no. <laughs> new role, you've got the new role, you've got, you know, just being a mom and stuff. I mean, there's that, um, being a wife, all these things yeah, that are on your plate. All the things. All of it. And you do it all with grace and you do it all very balanced. I, from you. afar, it feels that way as your friend. I feel like you are showing me that it's possible to have a lot of your passions and have them in synergy with each other. Thank you. I, you know, it's 
having a great support system is super important. I couldn't do it without my husband and my daughter, right? Like when I have to travel, you know, Andre holds me down. Like he makes sure Em's hair is done. Like he does all the little things that I'm like stressed out about. Like I can't have my child looking crazy because I couldn't do her hair. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's so helpful in that space. And just, I have peace when I have to go on the road. And, um, you know, that's not something that is found everywhere. So I'm grateful for the support system. They keep me, hum they keep me humble. <laughs> They keep me honest. And, um, you know, knowing that I have them in my corner cheer cheering for me very loudly <laughs> means the entire world. So the grace that you see is a reflection of them. And, um, yeah, all I want to do is continue to make them proud. They are proud of you. I know they are. The way your daughter looks at you, Larissa, like you're doing something right. So That's continue down that. <laughs> Thinking about the future, I'm going to ask you because I'm excited of, you know, looking ahead. I'm excited about knowing people like you in the wine industry and it is evolving and things are changing and thank goodness for these, you know, movements and improvements. So what is next for you? What excites you about 2023? Mm, that's a great question. Um, really stepping into, stepping beyond the new, the new space, the newness of this role. I kept telling myself last year, I'm like, next year, this time won't feel the same. Next year, this time won't feel the same, right? So as I'm approaching my year at the end of April to see that manifest and like, okay, yeah, I remember being in this space last time and huh, I have this under control. I know what to do here. Oh, been there, done that. So I'm really looking forward to just continuing to own this space. I've been given some really great counsel and the counsel has been to get out of your own way. The same thing I try to tell my daughter, get out of your own way. Darling, you can do hard things. Brave girl, you can do hard things. Um, I'm really continuing to stretch myself and I'm grateful to, I'm excited to see what that looks like um, as the year unfolds. Yeah, like really just, there's just so many, there's some fun things that are on the horizon, but I can't say them all, <laughs> but really just continuing to own the space. Um, I think for a long time, I've been in the rooms, but I haven't owned that I'm in the room. I've questioned why I'm in the room. And I've come to the understanding that, you know, they call that imposter syndrome. And I know that Imposter syndrome is something that I work through, but I come to the understanding that imposter syndrome actually never had anything to do with me. It was a reflection or it was something that somebody projected onto me because they just didn't have the wherewithal to consider that someone that looked like me could walk in a room, could own this space, could know what she's talking about, could be knowledgeable. So they just project whatever insecurity. And then me, the way that I'm made up, I just internalize that. Not, I'm not doing that no more. <laughs> so my word for the year, I'll share with you. I haven't shared with anybody. So why not the 100th <laughs> episode? So um, about two or three years ago, I believe it was my good dear friend, Regine, she introduced this idea to me of having a word, an intentional word for the year. My word in 2021 was forward. My word for 2022 was bigger. Oh that God. one unfolded in ways that I had no idea. Wow. My word this year is blaze. Let your light shine. Blaze. So you're going to shine when you're in the room and you're going to trailblaze and ensure that those that come after you don't have to go through the same thing. So I'm owning the rooms that I'm in. I'm owning my seat and really seeing that 
confidence growing within me and then in part seeing my daughter see that in me because <laughs> I can only teach her what she can see, right? Like do as I say, not as I do does not work with Emory Carroll. <laughs> Ask me how I know, right? So <laughs> I have to show her. And so my word for the year is blaze and I intend to do just that. So 2023 will be me continuing to blaze these new rooms, these new settings, these new conversations, these new dialogues, I will blaze each opportunity because that's where I'm supposed to be. And somebody hopefully will be inspired and see something of themselves within me and do the same. So that's what I'm looking forward to for the future of 2023. <laughs> Ooh, it just got real hot in here. It just got <laughs> real hot in here. I'm like, yes. light that fire. And then the beautiful part about that candle fire is that you pass it on to somebody else and yes. your fire is still blazing. You can have a giant candle sure and can. people can feed off of that. And it doesn't take away it doesn't from you. hurt your shine at all. No, no. Absolutely. That's right. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. I will be <laughs> cheersing with you and cheering for you always. Can't wait to see you soon. Maybe I need to have more fried chicken bottle shares so you can show me your champagne pairings. <laughs> I don't know. Will I see you at the 100th episode party? March 20th. Yeah. It's happening. I'll it's be happening. We are so lucky to have you in Atlanta and leading by example. Every wine shop you go in, people know your face. They know what you're doing for this community. So thank you so much for that. And I'm just, I'm so thankful you're part of the show. So grateful. Thank you, Kelly. Continue to shine bright because you were doing amazing work and I cannot wait for the 200th episode. Oh. Let's keep going. Oh, keep you just going. put it out there. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. And you did that in three years? Please. You can do that in half the time. <laughs> 2025. You're here to, hey. to hear first. Oh my god. You're here first. Yes. <laughs> Cheers to you, my friend. Thank you so Cheers, much for my your time. Dear. And finally, last but certainly not least, I checked in with Dan and Christina Limoges, winemakers and owners of Limoges Cellars, an up-and-coming vineyard and winery situated on 37 acres in the North Georgia mountains. Since the last time I spoke with them for the season three finale, they have built a house on the property, built their tasting room on the property, planted a bunch of vines, even had vines produce fruit for a harvest, and they've had a baby. <laughs> so this was such a fun, where are they now conversation to close out the 100th episode. I even had an opportunity to help them plant their vines in their first spring planting. So I do feel very connected to this project, and I can't wait to visit when they open their doors very, very soon. They do give us a date here for the spring of 2023. So thank you, Dan and Christina, for being on the show and for creating a little bit of magic up here in the North Georgia mountains. So cheers to everyone. Cheers to 100 episodes. And we'll talk again soon. So good to see you guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us. We're honored to be a part of your 100th episode. Thank you. 100 episodes. And we're tuning in from North Georgia to Atlanta. So thank you guys for taking the time to hop on again. You were last on the show as the season three finale. And we recorded on December 14th, 2020. I looked back. I feel like wow. multiple lifetimes have passed since then. But yeah. um, during that episode, we talked about your professional, your personal twists and turns that led you to a career path now as vineyard owners. And I think you had already purchased the land, but remind me what was going on in December, 2020. 
December 2020, I believe we had just cleared the first two acres and we probably had just planted grass and we were just watching our nice grass grow. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's your first success. If the grass grew, you're like, hey, we have land that grows things. That's perfect. (laughs) You had the property. You weren't living on property. You had decided to pursue the path of vineyard ownership. So now you not only live on that property full time in the coolest house that you built, but you also, in this amazing amount of time, you created a human. Yeah. <laughs> What's your baby's name and how old? Her name is Margo. Actually, she just turned six months today. So yeah, we're also looking back at like, wow, two years. We, I mean, we had 37 acres. We have 37 acres and we cleared five acres. We planted five acres of vines. We built a house. We built a tasting room. We had a baby. Dan quit his job halfway through that just to focus on this full time. I mean, it's been wild and amazing. We're excited that we're coming to the end as far as we're going to be open to the public pretty soon. So it's, yeah, it's all kind of coming to a head and we're going to be able to host people finally. (laughs) That is incredible. I think about all those things you just said. And if I did any of those in the span of five years, I'd feel proud of myself. (laughs) And you did all of those things. But yeah, Dan, you were working full time up till very recently. And then now it's getting to the point where this is a full time thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was about May of last year. I think we just realized that couldn't keep doing both. I was stretched really thin. And looking back at last year, even after I quit, we were still putting in a lot of hours, probably 60, 70 hours a week trying to build our tasting room mm-hmm. in our production area. And it, it, We literally just closed out the commercial building permit last week. Mm-hmm. So that tells you, I mean, it was a solid eight months. It's a 4,000 square foot building. I mean, it's definitely our biggest undertaking to date. I mean, before a year ago, we didn't even know if we could build a house by ourselves. It turns out Dan's pretty good at that. Uh, Good enough to build a commercial facility. It's it's turning out really nice. We haven't done any of the finishing touches yet. We've kind of shifted gears and are working in the vineyard because it's been warm. Buds are breaking. We're a little nervous because we know there's frost coming. And so we're having to focus on the vineyard now for the next couple of weeks. And then we'll get back to the finishing touches in the tasting room. Our Nebbiolo vines, uh, as Chrissy mentioned, have just pushed buds as of March 1st which is 21 days earlier than last year. Yeah. <laughs> so we're kind of to a point where we're at the beginning of March and it's normal for us to get a, a late spring uh, frost until even up to mid-April. So we expect those buds that pushed already are not going to make it. They're going to freeze out and new ones will push later, but they may not be fruitful. So we're a little nervous. And so now we're in uh, full-on pruning mode, getting everything else ready in the vineyard for potential bud burst. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that that's just kind of a loss. Like, you know that those buds won't make it. There's nothing you can do to save them. It is, but they were, it was in our test field. You know, we only had 25 to 50 vines of that variety because we were just experimenting to see if it grew well here. And we're thinking probably won't be one that we invest more into, sadly. (laughs) If it keeps pushing this early. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Science experiment successful. Yeah. So there you, go. you learned something. Hey, yeah. at the end of the day, you learned something. But now mm-hmm. you are, you built the house that I'm talking to you in right now. You mm-hmm. live on the property. What has it been like to wake up in the morning and look at your vineyard? You're living there every day. Tell me those morning moments. Do you pinch yourself at all? I mean, I would. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
absolutely a dream come true. I mean, yeah. this is this is uh, exactly what we envisioned. Yeah, Dan gets up a little earlier than I do, and he takes pictures of all the sunrises that are incredible. And we hear roosters crowing 5 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the vineyard. I mean, it's just when you're living here on site, I think you're able to also just keep track of what's going on. We're walking back and forth through the vineyard from our house to the tasting room every day. So we're noticing things immediately. It's really, really a good idea, I think, to be living on site when you have a vineyard and just walk those vines every single day. Because um, especially during growing season, you're going to see pests, you're going to see mildew like pretty immediately. It's been great. And it's amazing. <laughs> and do you take your baby through the vineyards too? Like you're walking with her every day as well. All the time. Yeah. And it's like uphill. Um, I'm with a stroller. I'm carrying her. It's a great workout. And she loves, I mean, she liked looking at the foliage when she was just born in September. She could see like the leaves overhead. And now, yeah, she's just getting a sense for like, wow, we have chickens, we have a cat, you know, <laughs> and soon she'll see grapes. And yeah, it'll be really exciting to raise her here for sure. You guys have a full house of things going on. <laughs> yeah. And I know, so it's really fun to think about waking up because I've been in the house and you have a window that looks directly up through the vines. It reminds me of like a Lion King moment where you're like, everything <laughs> the light touches is mine. It's just yeah. it's pretty awesome. I'm it's pretty so sure awesome. I said that to Margo. Like everything you see is your inheritance. <laughs> it's your it's your it's your domain. You're yeah. welcome. Uh, which is so beautiful. But yeah. let's talk about that first planting. I mean you now have full on vines that are at risk of frost and they're bud breaking all these things. I was honored to be part of that first planting. I planted some rows. It was really hard work. I am so <laughs> appreciative of that experience because it just makes you understand the blood, sweat, and sometimes tears that goes into planting yeah. a vineyard from the ground up. But how much prep was involved to coordinate that very key step in the process, that first planting. There was a lot. And first off, we got to thank you and, and all <laughs> of the volunteers who came out and helped us uh, because without all of that support, there was no way we could have done it. But from a planning perspective, it was it was a lot. Just getting the fields ready. We had to auger every hole before we planted. And you, have, you want to do it within a, a couple of days. So it was me and my father and her father out with our augers, just making holes in the ground, you know, <laughs> just everything from getting the posts in the ground, getting the anchors in, getting the rows straight, getting the vines marked precisely. And, and what we learned is it's very easy to be off by a couple inches here and there. And then your rows kind of like, well, when we look at it, we see it, but uh, yeah. probably the average person wouldn't. Um, you're over there like that was not a straight line. And you're, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one's yeah. going to no notice, but Dan's over there like, Dang. Every every time I drive the tractor through the rows, I see it. I see that's not a straight spot. <laughs> but how did you decide? How did you decide what to plant? I mean, you had worked very closely with a consultant to think about this for your property in particular. Obviously, the soil, but also the sun exposure, the mm -hmm. gradient of the land. So, how did you decide that first planting? What to put in the ground? We had first made a list of everything. I think we started with what we love to drink. Yeah, <laughs> what, what we like. Uh, and so we made a big long list and then we started narrowing it down with our consultant of uh, what we expect will actually grow well here. Mm -hmm. And I think we use Virginia as a model of seeing what's successful there. And we put in our test field to have kind of a, 
I'll call it like a stretch goal is just see if if something unique that we really like to drink could still work here. Mm-hmm. Um, like what? What was one of the crazy ones? I know I put, what was it? A, not Tariga maybe? I don't know. Was Tiraldigo. that one in there? Tiraldigo. Tiraldigo, mm-hmm. that's it. Some really yummy Tiraldigo since then from fermented and Alpharetta. <laughs> We've had some incredible Tiraldigo. So we're kind of excited about that. It pushed a little earlier this year. So we'll see. Tiraldigo Sangiovese, we're excited about. We know one other vineyard who planted it that should do fairly well. Gruner Feltliner, we're very excited about. That's not, we went all in on Gruner, planted a half an acre. So I think it'll do really well. Whites tend to do really well here. So. And the Albarino, we're really excited about. Yeah. We, uh, that fruit, we, we got a, we got a very small harvest this last year. So I should say that in the first two acres, which you helped us plant, mm-hmm. uh, it was on its second leaf last year, and we got a small harvest, which is pretty unheard of. So very happy, very thankful for our consultant and his advice and, and to get us there. But that Albarino, Kelly, you, you have to try it. It's mm-hmm. tropical. Yeah. You know, it was incredible. I planted yeah. a row of Albarino. That was yeah. one of my last ones. I had, I think I had two Merlot rows and yeah. then the Albarino row. So you're welcome, Dan. <laughs> Very successful. <laughs> you can come pick that row if you like. Later. Okay. <laughs> and can I drink the fruit of my labor? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> oh, you guys. Well, I'm glad that you were able to have the consultant's point of view, but also knowing that you made a list of what you wanted to drink because you're going to be investing in this, your time, your energy, your love. You want to be able to end up serving wines in the tasting room that you enjoy drinking yourself. So this is great that that was part of the initial process. Mm-hmm. Then you cleared a whole other section of the property. This was after that first planting and all of that. I want to know what the difference is between those two plots. Did you plant something completely different? The sun exposure is different. So what did you decide to plant on the new section? Yeah, the sun exposure is, is slightly different from a soil perspective though everything was very similar we've done multiple rounds of testing and for the amendments everything turned out to be pretty similar what we had to do from vines we did plant uh completely different varieties so we as chrissy mentioned we put uh gruner Feltliner in the ground cab sav cab franc and chamberson chamberson had a full acre and everything else had a half acre and then the small test field over there of Sangiovese. Oh, Chamberson, that's exciting. So you did look to Virginia because that tells me that you looked at what Virginia is doing because some of yeah. the best Chamberson I've had have, has been from Virginia, our friends up there. So that's really cool. I mean, it's exciting that you were able to expand so quickly and do that. But that means that you got really good at working with a bunch of different <laughs> contractors. You probably had like a parade of people coming to the property. How have you found the people to work with you at each of these phases? We look at each other longingly. Uh, how did that work? How did we get our people? <laughs> I mean, it's definitely hit and miss for a land clearing man. We had, I think, like five different crews up in here. Um, we learned to go with a lump sum versus a daily rate because people will just kind of assume that you're made of money and just work for months and months and not really make any progress. <laughs> so that was a learning curve for us. Dan on the building and stuff would hire certain things out, like the roof. He's not comfortable with heights. And we got a great roofer in to do our house and then the tasting room. He's local and highly recommend him. Thankfully, no complaints there. We did hire out drywall mudding. Dan would hang all the drywall, but he just doesn't trust himself to make those perfect finishes with the mud. And so it would have taken me two months to do what they did in a week. So, and then other things we got quotes for. (laughs) I feel like we're constantly optimistic. We get quotes and then we 
we're hearing prices for mm-hmm. things like hanging the drywall was going to cost what $20,000. And we said, are you <laughs> like, that's yeah. insane. We can't, we really can't afford these things if we're going to open our doors anytime soon. Like the, the money was, is really running out. <laughs> so anytime it would come back, like painting too, I think was outrageous. And we just said, no, we're going to paint ourselves. We would rent a lift or something and just um, put in the that. hours. <laughs> yeah. So I'd, I'd say the building took a little bit longer than expected because of that. But, you know, when you see some of those, those lump sums coming back, it's you just hard to swallow. We had to decide, like, we have a lot of time. I mean, in reality, we have time, we have the energy to do it, we don't have the money. So we just had to put our focus on, on doing it ourselves. Well, Dan, then your background in engineering probably came into play more often than not. <laughs> more than I thought, yes. Yeah. I'm not going to pay for that because I can do it. That yeah. is a very good place to be. Yeah, we're thankful his dad um, owns a company for HVAC. And so he was able to save us tens of thousands of dollars doing our system in the tasting room and our house as well. Um, and Dan is learning right alongside him. I bet he could do it himself now <laughs> if it weren't for like charging the systems. I think you have to have special equipment to do all that so you're gonna come do so. the hvac in our cellar at my place you want to come do that that'd be great uh come on down dan let's, let's talk i'm gonna hire you uh this yeah. is wonderful okay so this is really great i mean obviously there are certain stages and i love how you talk about those tasks because it really is broken down by individual skill sets for all of these pieces of the project so i'm gonna ask you a fun question followed by a little bit of a difficult question but the fun question is what has been your most favorite moment? Anything that you're most proud of up to this point? Christina, you go first. Uh, I mean, Margo aside. <laughs> she's like, the day you gave down. birth. Okay, good. My crowning achievement, I have to say. <laughs> she's incredible. You know, I'm getting to the really exciting part now. It's always amazing to see your vision come to life. Me even communicating my vision to Dan is challenging enough. Like, we're just two very different people in that way. He's so process and detail oriented, and I'm just. I see an image, I'm very creative. And so I just see like an end result and I have no idea how to get there. And I usually show him pictures and inspiration and all that. And so finally getting to the point where I'm picking out the finishing touches, the, the lighting, the flooring, the countertop for the bar, the tiles, paint colors, that's my wheelhouse. And I'm so, so excited for all those finishing touches. <laughs> the aesthetics. Yes. The yes. look, the feel that makes sense because I love the design yeah. of your house. And so yeah. if anything that you touch um, becomes <laughs> that aesthetic, I'm like, I yeah. get it. That's Christina's vision. Dan, yeah. how about you? Favorite moment? I really enjoyed as much work as our uh, small harvest was. I really loved seeing that all come together. Just seeing that we did it. You know, we <laughs> we actually moved fruit. Everything was clean. It was about 7,000 pounds of fruit we brought in. Yeah, So it was still a lot of work. <laughs> but just the fact that we we grew nice, strong, healthy vines. We got strong, clean harvest for second year. We had grapevines. It was just, it made it all worth it. This is great. You didn't grow <laughs> something wrong. It was a grapevine and it produced a grape. Yeah. That's a success yeah. from a vineyard management point. Absolutely. It's hard to get over like the first, like seeing the little flowers. The first year you don't keep those. You snip everything off. And so last year, man, seeing the flowering buds and then seeing tiny little like BBs forming, you're like, oh my gosh, this is I can't believe it. And then they start turning green and getting bigger and they look like kind of fake plastic grapes you see like in kids' toys, you know? And then yeah, it smells incredible in the vineyard during flowering. Seeing Verasian happen, it's just, it's all wild. It's like a first for everything for us. So yeah, I can't wait to do it all over again. <laughs> and I know we talked about the frost pressure. Mm-hmm. I'll call it a pressure, right? Uh, the potential for frost issues. 
but it seems like every phase of the growing process, there's something else, there's a risk. And so I think when we got to harvest, I finally looked back and said, we didn't screw it up. There mm-hmm. were so many things where we could, so many opportunities to screw it up and we mm-hmm. didn't. So mm-hmm. um, cheers to that. I'm going to, I'm going to cheers to my cop. I'm like, you didn't screw it up, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. speaking of challenges, because I know every step of the way has its new potential downfall. So mm-hmm. what has been a challenge that you didn't expect that you had to overcome? Was there some, I mean, you're always thinking and planning and preparing for the worst, but was there something that happened that you just didn't expect that was really challenging? Yeah, there's a few of those. Uh, <laughs> Maybe there's many. I'm like, oh no, not to go down a dark hole, but you overcame yeah. them. So uh, the first one I would start with is uh, yellow jackets. We thought that yellow jackets were more of just a hazard to the workers in the field. <laughs> we noticed them swarming and we started to see we had little hollow shells of berries on the vines in the red. So when the fruit gets sweet enough, the yellow jackets will actually puncture. puncture the berries, crawl inside and just hollow them out. So you you don't really notice it. You'll just look there and then all of a sudden you'll like you'll touch it and it'll just a grape skin will just fall apart in your hands. And then you realize that the yellow jackets have been eating your fruit the whole time. Mm-hmm. And uh with our with our chickens, I, I usually do my spraying at night so that we don't have any uh, any drift into their area. So then I realize that well, the yellow jackets aren't out at night. So I'm not hitting the yellow jackets when I'm spraying. Mm-hmm. So then I had to make a couple special uh, daytime sprays. We just didn't realize. We didn't really, uh-huh. we weren't proactive about combating the yellow jackets mm-hmm. because we didn't realize they were going to be such a problem. But I think in Petit Verdot, they probably got close to 75% of our fruit. No. Yeah. It hurts <gasps> to I mean, say they that. Can, they can really just go at your, yeah. at your yield. And Petit Verdot was the last harvest. So it was on, you know, it was out there for the longest after we picked up everything else. So the yellow jackets had that was the only place to go for yeah. them. So that's when they really did some damage. So we're definitely going to be more proactive this year, setting out some traps early on, I think. Yeah, oh, learning as you go. I really don't like yellow jackets. Uh, <laughs> personally, I have. Um, I was attacked by a swarm of yellow jackets. And I, I'm one of those people that if there's one swarming, I will run. Um, yeah. So I just, you know, I already don't like them. And then if they stole the Petit Verdot of all the grapes, yeah. I'm like, come on, buddies. Okay. <laughs> well, you overcame it. You're learning and you will be proactive. I like that you say that. And you've had this opportunity to teach others about these lessons that you've learned. You welcomed an entire group of our Sunday tasting group up to the vineyard to see and get our hands on the vines. That was so, so nice. I love that you're able to do these viticulture teaching moments. How does it feel to welcome people in the wine community to your vineyard? Great. A little intimidating, to be honest. I mean, we feel like first timers, you know, with everything. and But, you know, we're learning and we love that part, I think, of the winery and tasting room is we'd love to open it up for education. It's a big thing in general. I think it's going to be a big thing up here just to start teaching people a little bit more about what they like might like to drink, what they might have never tried before, you know, and uh, just opening up their minds to new grape varieties and new techniques and some fun sparkling wines we hope to make. And so, yeah, I think we'd love to teach classes, uh, host winemaker dinners, and just really do kind of some deep dives into grape growing and winemaking. We wish we had the opportunity to join your uh, Sunday tasting group so if, if you guys would like to make a monthly trip up here yeah. feel free we would uh, love to be a part yeah we'll come up for that what it'll be viticulture plus blind tasting this yeah. sounds like a wonderful monthly tradition yeah. noted i really think it's a beautiful place for people to come from the city it's not that far you drive up there and it is transported to seeing 
actual vineyard management firsthand. And a lot of people that are studying in a lot of their exams, they're learning about this. They're even learning about pests. I mean, that's a yeah. whole section of these exams. And mm. then they're going to learn from you who have actually seen it in person and you are managing it in the vineyard. So it is a beautiful opportunity to welcome the wine community. So thank you for doing that for us. Mm-hmm. I also think you have a wonderful positive outlook. You're talking about these things of the process and things are coming to a close. So mm-hmm. let's close out today by talking about what you're looking forward to most in 2023. Tell me about the plans ahead. What excites you about the next couple of months? Oh man. I mean, everyone says like when you have a baby, your world's going to change. And we know that's going to be equally true. Like once we open the doors, we're like a full-time business. Our property is not our property. It's not like a private place for us anymore. It's going to be kind of traffic all day long. And we're so excited about that. You know, (laughs) finally, everyone will be here. They'll be able to taste the fruits of our labor. Yeah, We we get to do what we originally set out to do, right? We didn't plant a vineyard so that we could be construction workers. We <laughs> So now we get to do, you know, this year, I think will be the first year we get to do the full winery experience. We get yeah. to do everything. Uh, hopefully mm-hmm. we can get some oak barrels on order this year as well. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, and our friends and family have been such a huge and integral part of this to have them come alongside and to invite their friends. You know, I think in the future, we'll probably, we hope to do a club um, the loft in our tasting room will be like a club member's lounge. That's so kind of phase two. We have a phase two <laughs> plan because we are not able to finish the upstairs area for guests. We we just need to open our doors, which we hope will happen end of April, beginning May. It's right around the corner. Really that soon? Yeah. Okay. So when you open, where's the best place for people to find that news? Where should people be looking to know when you do open your doors? Instagram always, that's probably where I, I think to post things first um, at Limoges Sellers. And then our website too, you can sign up for email updates and I'll try and get that out there as well. LimogesSellers.com kind of just be an opening weekend. We're thinking not necessarily one day, it'll be Dan and I behind the bar most likely. <laughs> so um, we kind of probably need to open on a Thursday or something so that we don't get hit by like a mass of people before we're prepared. We're going to work out the kinks on Thursday and Friday, but still come. (laughs) And then hopefully by Saturday and Sunday, yeah, we'll have it all figured out. (laughs) Well, Margo's going to help too. I mean, she's definitely going to be there to help. And you got the chickens, like everyone's on board. You guys, it's great. But you'll be slinging the bottles behind the bar. Okay. This is wonderful. Keep us posted on opening weekend. I can't wait to see what you guys do next. Thank you for coming back on the show and for being part of the 100th episode. I'm so you guys had some big updates. That's why I wanted to talk to you. Yeah. So, thank you so much for all you do and congratulations on the journey this far. Thanks so much. It's thank been an you. honor. We can't wait to host you and everyone listening. Yes, thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks, Kelly. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to the A Cork in the Road podcast coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia and interviewing people who are changing the wine world in the Southeast and beyond. You can find more about A Cork in the Road at at A Cork in the Road on Instagram and make sure to check us out on www.acorkintheroad.com. See you soon, guys. Cheers.